If you have your Bibles with you, then it would be good to turn to the book of Matthew, which is the first one in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible, and we're going to read a few verses from Matthew chapter 6. That's uh, part of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is where Jesus sits and teaches his disciples. That runs from chapters 5 through to 7, and I'm going to read the start of chapter 6. So, Matthew chapter 6, starting to read at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honoured by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. When you pray... You are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But, when, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you are praying... Do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's pray. As we sit now, God, in your presence... We invite you to draw close to us. We've sung that we are your children. We've sung that you are alive. We've been reminded that you are the creator of all things and yet interested in each and every one of us. And so we want to sit and bask in your presence. And God, as we look at this passage of Scripture so well known, those words of of that prayer so often repeated, memorized by so many, and said the world over, week in, week out, we pray bring 
fresh revelation to us today. May we encounter you as we look at your word. Amen. So first of all, apologies if there are in the room any towering giants of prayer who could give a much better exposition of this than I'll be able to. But if there aren't any, then I'll continue. And continue really with a, with a confession that I have a problem. And that problem is prayerlessness. I find my attempts at praying are flawed and faltering and stuttering. I find my commitment to prayer to be at best patchy and at times virtually non-existent. And even though when I look back at my years of knowing Jesus, I can see that there have been wonderful times of great intimacy with God in prayer, I still find that prayerlessness characterises so many days. And over those years, I've seen answers to prayer, amazing answers to prayer. God providing, God acting in response to prayers which I've spoken. And still I find that I struggle with prayerlessness. I often find myself praying intently and passionately and persistently when there's something that I need. Some sort of guidance, some sort of wisdom, some kind of decision that needs to be made, some sort of solution that I need to a difficulty, some kind of healing that I need God to break through in. But I've also found that when those crises are not looming, my prayerlessness comes back and takes a hold again. I find it hard to pray and easy to give up praying. And it's not that I haven't tried all sorts of things, because I have. I've written prayer lists, I've used prayer cards, I've had a prayer file, which if you know me, wouldn't surprise you to know that it was alphabetized um, and we kind of each... Entry was replaced as a new entry came in, you know, an updated prayer letter or a new email printed out and slotted into the right bit. Yeah, I used that. I used a book called Operation World, which helped me to pray about every country around the whole world in a year. I even went through a period where I designated each day of the week with a general heading. Monday was family. Tuesday was friends. Wednesday was small group. You know, that kind of thing. I find myself easily distracted when I pray. And so I spent a while sitting there with a blank piece of paper and a pen next to me. Not for the vast insight I would have through engaging with God, but that whenever a thought came about what I needed to do that day or what needed to go on the shopping list, I could jot it down and therefore not have to think about it. 
In order to aid my concentration, I've gone for early morning walks, late night walks. When I was a teenager, there was a a, a hill near where I used to live. I used to walk up there and be able to see over the town that I lived in to help me try and focus in my praying. And each of these techniques is useful for a period, and then I find prayerlessness returns. I know that I generally learn by reading things, by studying. And so I've read books and books on prayer in the kind of vain hope that if I read enough books on prayer, something will click and I'll then be able to do it. I've looked up every occurrence of the word pray or prayer throughout the whole of the Bible and read it in context to try and give me some insights. I've studied the great prayers of scripture to try and give me some fodder for my prayers. And the main thing that all that study has shown me is that I find it very easy to study prayer and very difficult to pray. I know I find it easier when I pray with others, whether it be in twos or threes or in life group or in a wider church setting. Because when I'm with, with others, there's, I, I get inspired by their passion by their seeming intimacy with God, by their, their freedom in prayer. And I, yeah, I want that. I can go away. I can do that in my front room. I am utterly convinced as to the value of prayer, the need for prayer, the benefits of prayer, the fact that in prayer I get to know God better. I'm utterly convinced of it. You need to do no convincing at all. I also know that I am who I am today because of the grace of God in my life and because there have been faithful people who love me and have prayed consistently for me for years and years. And yet I still find it difficult to pray. I know that if I do pray, I can draw closer to God. And yet I find that I have prayerlessness in my life and I lack that desire to pray. And when I do read a bit, I find then a conflict going on. So I read through the Gospels. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, teaches about prayer. It's one of the things that he teaches about most frequently. He models prayer. He gives examples of prayer. And the early church, when that all kicked off in Acts, we see them having powerful times of prayer. In fact, we see prayer as being one of the four, what I call, devoted to pillars that they built the church on. Acts 2.42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. It's there, right at the very heart of what they do. And then I read some of the, the amazing people who have littered church history. C.H. Spurgeon says this of prayer. To pray is to bathe in a cool, swirling stream to escape the summer sun. To pray is to mount on eagle's wings above the clouds and get into clear heaven where God God dwells. To pray is to enter the treasure house of God. To pray is to grasp heaven with one's arms and to embrace deity with one's soul and to feel one's body made a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
to pray is to cast our burdens, to tear away our rags, to be filled with spiritual vigour, to reach the highest point of Christian health. That's what they say about prayer. That is not what I daily experience of prayer. And so this conflict is, on the one hand, I see this amazing, incredible experience of prayer. And on the other hand, I have my experience of these stuttering steps in prayer. And also the fact that people tell me I find it hard to read my Bible and I find it hard to pray. And I note that there are so many books on prayer and that tells me that there must be people out there who haven't got it all sorted yet and feel they have something to learn about prayer. And so my conclusion is that prayer is difficult. It is rewarding, yes, but it is difficult. And difficult for many of us. So again, I apologize to the giants of prayer. I am not one of them, but I would love to be. And what I feel God has laid on my heart this afternoon is to attempt to unpack a little bit of how Jesus introduces us to prayer. I find it interesting that in the account that Luke gives in his gospel, the Lord's prayer comes in response to a question from his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, okay, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. So this is like the beginner's lesson, if you like, in the school of prayer. But that's where I feel I am. But I hope that there will be something in here for each of us to bring us into a a greater freedom and an increased depth in prayer that maybe all of us would desire to move into. And as well, we've been spending some time as a church looking through Matthew And in the last few weeks, looking at the Sermon on the Mount in particular, and the fact that this is describing a kingdom culture, something which we want to see evidenced amongst us, something that we want to be living in. And it strikes me that if we're going to take this kingdom culture seriously, then we need to be a people who pray, because it's here. Jesus puts it here, right, if you like, in the centre of the Sermon on the Mount. And I do feel as well that for us as a church, we are beginning to learn how to pray together. I think it's an area that he's got more for us in. I think he wants us to teach us how to pray. And it's begun, and in the first meetings which we had towards the start of the year, he, God gathered us together with the sole aim of being in his presence. That was the aim. There wasn't an agenda, and I think in that, we were learning something of what it means to meet with God in prayer. So let's get to the passage. There is no doubt that the Lord's Prayer is the model prayer for the believer. But he doesn't just give us this formula that we can recite, although that is a good thing to do, I would say. But he emphasizes the state of our hearts. And so he begins in verses 5 and uh, 3 to 8 by talking, by comparing groups of people. And so he starts by talking about the hypocrites. 
And he says, well, look out for the hypocrites because they're like billboard advertisements. You never see a billboard advertisement tucked away in a store cupboard at your workplace, do you? You see them on the sides of the road, lit up in lights, huge things in places where they're seen. And that's what hypocrites do. They stand on the street corners and they lift up their voices to Jesus. That would have been the culture. Wouldn't have been Jesus, it would have been God. They would have done it in the synagogues. And Jesus says, you're not to be like that. You're not to be people who who advertise the fact you're praying. Instead, you're to go into your room, and the word used here is a room that has no windows. So you go into your room and you close the door. That's it. You, the four walls, and the door. And God. Although men may not see you at prayer, or hear you, or even know that you pray, God knows. And that is the crucial thing. And so in this contrast, we have the hypocrites who want to be seen by men and then the believers who know they are seen by God. When we pray, we must have an audience of one, God alone. That's not to cut out corporate prayer. That's important. But even in that context, we are praying to God. We're not praying to impress the room. So that's the first contrast or comparison that Jesus makes. The hypocrites with the believers. But he also makes a contrast with the Gentiles. The Gentiles are non-Jews. So people who worship pagan gods. And he says about them, well they heap up phrases. They use lots of words. They have this meaningless repetition when they pray. Almost as if they're kind of trying to rouse their God into action. That kind of they can prove that they should be listened to because they speak enough. They kind of, you know, ding ding ding, the quota's there, so now we can now he will answer. Jesus says, Don't be like them. Don't be like them. They pray hoping to be heard by some distant deity. We pray knowing that our Father already knows what we need even before we say it. And so what Jesus is really saying in these four verses is that more important than the form of our prayer or the place of our prayer or the content or the phrasing or the timing or the impressiveness or anything like that, more important than all of that is our attitude in prayer. When we pray, what are we hoping for? We must be just seeking his face having a conversation with our God, simply wanting his presence. And then Jesus, excuse me, goes on to give us these precious, precious words of the Lord's Prayer. And what I'm going to do for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to go through this very briefly, line by line. There are approximately a year's worth of sermons in here, but I'm going to go through them very quickly in a few minutes. And then I want to underline two things that I feel God would want to say to us as a church this afternoon. So the Lord's Prayer, 57 words, that's all it is. It's like a kind of 
lengthy tweet. Okay? 57 words in the original language, but absolute dynamite. And it's got, uh, the, the basic structure is the, the opening address to God, our Father in heaven. Then there are three petitions about God and his glory. That's followed by three petitions about us and our need. And then it's closed off with the words which I read, because they're in my version of the Bible, and they might not have been in yours. Okay, they were probably added at a later date, but they're good. Okay. So I'm just going to go through that quickly, line by line. So, our Father who is in heaven. All I'm going to say about this is, I'm going to focus on this later, other than note that we're told to address our Father. That's important for what follows. So, our Father who is in heaven. We're addressing God. And then there are these three petitions about God and his glory. The first one is, hallowed be your name, or make your name holy. This petition is about God's name being honoured and glorified throughout the whole world. Andrew Murray, writing about this, makes a really interesting point. He says that the word holy is the, the central word of the Old Testament. And the name Father is the central word of the New Testament. And so here, in two lines, Jesus puts them together. Our Father, holy be your name. These two big ideas together. But our prayer here is that God's name would be glorified through us. Holy be your name. Second petition about God and his glory is your kingdom come. I called the talk Kingdom Prayer because it's in the context of this kingdom culture being laid out by Jesus. And Kingdom Prayer, therefore, must focus on the King of the Kingdom. And if this King is our Father, then that makes us sons and daughters and heirs of the Kingdom. And the heirs of the Kingdom are concerned about the Kingdom affairs. We have to be. Because it's our inheritance, and you're concerned about your inheritance. And so when we pray, we pray about God's name, that it would be be made holy throughout the earth. But we also pray that his kingdom would advance, would come. And isn't that what we want to see? We want to see the kingdom breaking out across this town and region. We want to see lives changed. We want to see people healed and restored. We want to see justice and righteousness prevail. We want to see multitudes of people coming to know Jesus as their saviour. We want to see passionate worship break out all over the place. We want to see the kingdom come. And so we pray, your kingdom come. And the third petition about God and his glory is your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is done. Full stop. The prayer is that that situation is replicated on earth. And when God's kingdom is advanced, God's will is done. On earth. So this phrase is about surrender to God. It's about lives being given over to his service. It's about the will of God being done here on earth. 
It's about heaven breaking out on the earth. Three petitions, all about God and his glory, God and his interests, God and his priorities. Make your name holy. Bring your kingdom in and let your will be done. And I find it really interesting that Jesus starts with us petitioning God for the things that most concern God. You read, the old, you read any of scripture and it's about God and his glory. And only then, when we've exalted God to the right place, do we turn to us and our needs. And there are three of them as well. The first is, give us today our daily bread. I think there's an expectation in children that their parents will provide for their every need. I think that's my responsibility as a dad, that there is some food provided for my children to eat now and again. And so since we have a heavenly father, surely it is only right for us to approach him and say, Dad, I need some daily bread today. And he will provide for us. It's the role that a parent plays. And we can ask him for whatever we need. This isn't a kind of hankering after the the latest trends and trinkets. This is a request for needs to be met. But we can ask him in the full confidence that as our father, he will provide for us. So that's the first petition. Give us today our daily bread. The second is forgive us our debts or trespasses or sins as we have forgiven our debtors. If daily bread is required for our physical well-being then forgiveness is required for our spiritual well-being. And when we pray this, although it wouldn't have been the case for the disciples when they first heard these words at this point, but when we pray this, surely this phrase, forgive us our sins, leads us to think of Jesus, leads us to think of the cross, leads us to think of the fact that his blood purchased our freedom and forgiveness. But it's also interesting to note that this is dependent on us forgiving others. This petition is dependent on that. Yes, we have forgiveness of our sins, absolutely. But if we are harboring unforgiveness in our hearts, then I think what Jesus is teaching here, and interestingly he comes back to it in verses 14 and 15 after the Lord's Prayer finishes, then I don't think we can walk into the fullness of knowing that forgiveness if we harbour unforgiveness in our hearts. And so even as we pray for forgiveness for sins that we have committed, we also need to forgive others in the same way that we've been forgiven. So give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, And thirdly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. This is a prayer that we may live a life that steers clear of sin. We will be tempted. Jesus was tempted. 
as Rob taught a few uh, weeks ago, months ago now. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with being tempted. It's part of the battle that we live in. But it's what we do with that temptation. And this petition is a, a plea that we will have strength under that temptation. It's asking God to help us live a life that makes his name holy, that does his will on earth. And we, of course, can only do that with the filling of the Spirit. And then the prayer is closed out with this incredible phrase, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Like I said before, it's not in the original. It would have been added uh, later on. But it is still um, totally in line with the things that Jesus would have taught, totally in keeping with the rest of the prayer. And I personally always include it when I pray. So this prayer is absolute dynamite. It really is. 57 words. But I would, if I were a betting man, wager that you will never plumb the depths of this in its entirety, this side of heaven. We do well to study it and to use it. But there are two things that I think God wants to emphasize in particular this afternoon. And the first is that kingdom prayer is about the glory of God. Touched on that already. But glory. John Stott says, or said, true Christian prayer is always a preoccupation with God and his glory. Love that. True Christian prayer is always a preoccupation with God and his glory. And there is no doubt that this whole prayer rings with that tone of the glory of God. And I'd encourage you to read through the great prayers of the Bible. Moses interceding for the people when they make the golden calf and God threatens to destroy them. Or Solomon as he prays and and dedicates the temple. Or Elijah as he battles and defeats the uh, prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Or Daniel when he's interceding for the nation of Israel. Or the early church when they have those meetings and they, they declare the glories of God. Or Paul as he writes these prayers in his letters to the churches. All of them are filled with prayer about the glory of God. All of them. It's one of the great themes of scripture, the glory of God. And I think this is why the Lord's Prayer begins with the glory of God. And on every line, it's about the glory of God. And I think even in those requests that have man as the subject, I still think that it has God at the centre. Daily provision, where does that come from? From the hand of God. Forgiveness for our sins, where does that come from? From the hand of God. Strength under temptation, where does that come from? From the hand of God. This is all about the glory of God. He gets the glory from every line and in every request of this prayer. And I would suggest that our prayer should be similar. God getting the glory with every single line. I want to give you one practical way of doing this. It's through thanksgiving. 
I'm going to take a very brief stroll through some of the New Testament letters. I'm just going to read out these verses to you. So Romans 1.8. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all because... And then he launches into some amazing Pauline writing. 1 Corinthians 1.4. I thank my God always concerning you. Ephesians 1.15.16. For this reason I too do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Colossians 1.3. We give thanks to God for you. In those, every one of those examples, and there are many more, Paul goes on to say why he's thankful. I haven't got time to read them all. But it's things like, because they know the grace of God, because they have a robust faith, because they know the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul is thankful in his praying for what God has done in the lives of others. In fact, he goes even further than that. And he says that our prayers should be inextricably linked to thanksgiving. In Philippians 4, 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. You see, when we are thankful, God gets the glory. Why? Because the attention is directed towards him. And that's why testimony is important. And in the last few months, we've been encouraging stories of what God has done in our lives. Why? Because testimony is important. It's important to hear what God is doing. Why is that? Well, if I hear what God has done in your life, I can thank God for doing that. It builds my faith to hear what God has done. It gives me some content for my prayer, which, as you've heard, is not always in the best shape. And that, in turn, leads me into his presence. So what that means is that your testimony helps me love Jesus more. We should testify about what God has done in our lives, because it leads us to thankfulness. So kingdom prayer, then, is about the glory of God. But the second thing I felt that I wanted to emphasize this afternoon is that kingdom prayer is about intimacy. We'll go back to those opening words. Our Father. Jesus could have started the prayer by addressing God in any number of ways all of which would have been entirely appropriate. He could have taken names that are used in the Psalms. The Lord, the Most Holy One, the Most High One, God of Vengeance. Let's start that. Lord's Prayer would give a different feel, wouldn't it? God of Vengeance. Almighty God. Or the Great and Awesome God, like Daniel prayed with. Or, O Lord God of heaven, like Nehemiah prayed with. God of Israel, like Solomon prayed. Or, Sovereign Lord, Creator, Holy One of Israel, like Isaiah litters his whole prophecy with. But Jesus chooses to use our Father. That is startling. Just imagine for a minute that you'd 
never read the kind of back half of the Bible. And you started at Genesis 1 and you'd worked your way through and you now get to Matthew chapter 6. You would be shocked that this Jesus, this God-man, appears on the scene and within six chapters of this new section of the Bible, he's suddenly saying, you can talk to God like this, our Father. Now, we looked at this last year, and if you, you missed those talks on the Father Heart of God from last June, I'd encourage you to go and listen to them. But from that, we know that this, this Abba, this word Abba, is a, a word of endearment. It's an intimate word. It's a word that children use towards their, pair, towards their dad. It indicates that there is personal relationship there. It is a special term. Now, recently... My two boys have started calling me Simon. I'm hoping that every child goes through this stage. But they do it with grins on their faces because they know they're being cheeky. Simon, 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 come for dinner. And I found myself saying to them, why are you calling me Simon? And Joseph said, well, it's your name. Everyone calls you Simon. I said, I know that. But why are you calling me Simon? There are two people in the whole world who get to call me Daddy. So why are you calling me Simon? You didn't quite get it. It's much more amusing to call me Simon. (laughs) But that's the privilege we have when we approach God in prayer, that we come and say, Daddy, Father, Michael Green writes, the whole gospel is contained in that one little word, Abba, Father. That's quite profound. The whole gospel contained in that. Here we've got it. How are you going to pray, our Father? We get to call God our Father. And when we pray this prayer genuinely, it is a sign that we are sons and daughters of the king. In Romans chapter 8, very famous words, but I'll read them. It says, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Our Father. But that's not the whole of the opening address, is it? Our Father who is in heaven. This is no pally-pally relationship that we have with God. This is not an easy-come-easy-go. This isn't a sort of just saunter into the throne. This isn't a casual expectation that that this all-powerful God is just going to be at our beck and call when we so desire. No, this is our heavenly Father. There is something other about him. 
He is exalted. He is the king of kings. He is, as as John brought earlier, the, the creator of the whole universe. And yet he is interested in us. And yet, at the same time, he is our father. And so we should recognize that he is this righteous judge. This all-powerful, all-consuming God. And we should approach him like that, because that's what he is. And he is our heavenly father. And we should approach him like that. Now that is a total mystery to me. I, I spent the first 20 years of my Christian life thinking that God was very good to me, but somehow remote, somehow untouchable, kind of not too keen with my ongoing sin issues. And therefore, couldn't really approach in some sort of way. I then spent the next 10 years kind of figuring out, well, he's my father, So, how does that work? That's amazing. Oh, wow. And now I'm at the point where I've got these two things that I know are true, and I'm, how does that work? I think this is how it works. Our Father who is in heaven, make your name holy. That's how it works. And so built into this very prayer is this praying for the glory of God to be manifested and spread all across the world, for the kingdom to come, for our needs to be met, for our sins to be dealt with, and the fact that we can approach him as father. There's an intimacy there 